Thank you for that song this morning. Let's take our Bibles and let's go to 1 Peter, all right? 1 Peter this morning. And as we come back to this book, we need to keep in mind one of the main goals behind the writing of Peter, all right? I'm going to remind us of this every time we come to it. But uh, keep in mind that one of the main goals or main purposes behind the writing of Peter is to do this, all right? Peter's trying to strengthen the brethren. He's trying to strengthen the brethren. Uh, just as Jesus told him one day he would do. In Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, Jesus said, When thou art converted, he's talking to Peter, uh, when thou art converted, when you come back, strengthen thy brethren. Settle them. Help them. Strengthen thy brethren. So Peter sits down just to do that. He sits down to write and to strengthen the believers, strengthen the brethren. But why would Peter at this moment need to sit down and do just that? Why would he need to strengthen them? Why would he need to provide some kind of stability or something that's constant and concrete in their life? Why would he do that? Well, again, keep in mind what these precious believers were facing at this moment in the first century. Remember, they were facing some horrendous persecution. Uh, they were suffering great loss, facing prison, facing torture, and even death, all from the cruel hand of Nero. And so Peter, he writes to encourage them, writes to strengthen these suffering individuals in this first century. They would need strength. And it's not the strength of a, a political party or financial strength or military strength that they needed. Rather, it was strength that would come from this word, hope. Peter is writing to give them strength that's found in hope. Hope through the fiery trials. That's to try them. In one form or another, Peter references that. He references their suffering some 15 times in the book of 1 Peter. But he's trying to give them hope through his fiery trials, through the pain they're enduring. Just give them hope for the next day. He's trying to give them hope. And that hope that he's trying to give, once again, keep in mind, it's not a hope of a cross your fingers. It's not a hope of I wish and, and hope this works out type of thing. That's not what he's painting here. It's not what he's giving. That's not the real hope we're talking about. Rather, the hope that we are speaking of is a confident assurance, not in self, but in the Savior. A hope is a confident assurance in the promises and person of God. That's real hope. And that's what Peter's trying to do as he sits down to strengthen the brethren to give them hope. Hope for the hurting, hope for the seemingly hopeless. He's trying to do all of that. He is trying to strengthen the brethren. In one way they will gain strength to face those uncertain days that they are about to go through is by giving them hope. And listen, same for us. We face uncertain days, do we not? You know not what a day may bring forth, that's what the Bible says. <laughs> It's always uncertain. We can plan and make our future plans. That's good and well, but it's still all uncertain. There's one thing we can have hope in. It's in the promises and person of our great God. We can have hope. And many people need it today. But as we look in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we noticed last time, I want to finish the message we started last Sunday, all right? But we noticed last time, as Peter's trying to strengthen the brethren and gives them hope, he gives them hope as he points them to a Christ-centered focus. 
And that's what he does here in verse number 3. All right, look at it with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. From the very get-go, Peter is trying to get these believers to get their eyes off their surroundings and off the circumstances of life. And by doing that, though, he's not trying to minimize, necessarily minimize the circumstances because, listen, they were terrible and they were horrible. But rather what he's trying to do while they face this is not minimize the circumstance, but maximize the Lord, trying to get them to focus in on Jesus Christ. Because, listen, if you maximize or focus in on your circumstances and on your surroundings, you're going to do nothing but be anxious, worry, and fret all the time, and you will feel hopeless. But if you focus in and redirect your focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find great hope. And you will find great peace down in your heart that every human being craves. You'll find peace from the Prince of Peace himself. Redirect your focus. So he's trying to do that. He is trying to get these individuals, as it gives them strength and hope, to have a Christ-centered focus. Because, listen, Jesus never fails. He won't fail you now. But what else does he do? As he tries to strengthen the brethren and give them hope, well, he not only points them to a Christ-centered focus, but number two, he points them to this. From verse number four, he points them to a certain future. All right? Look at verse number four with me. To an inheritance incorruptible, and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Uh, now this, this is a great verse and, and uh, to find some great hope in, especially as you consider to whom Peter is writing, keeping that overall context in mind to the believers he's writing to who've lost about everything. Uh, they've lost their, their lands, they've lost their home. Remember, they're being scattered away from their home. Uh, they've lost, no doubt, their jobs. Anything really of any monetary value, it's all gone. And that would be a bad day, would it not? <laughs> How many would say, if I lost everything, that'd be a bad day? It's okay. Raise your hand. Everybody can raise your hand. That's a bad day. All right. But these guys were facing that. And many days like it. They're losing everything. But Peter in this moment wants to point them to something they will never lose. It's a certain future. Look at it again, verse number four. Two... An inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Now let me quickly look at a few words here to help us understand about our certain future, all right? Look at that first word there, the third word rather, in verse number four, the word inheritance. Now, oh, what, what is this? What, what is an inheritance? Well, we, we can understand what inheritance is as we think about it in our human standpoint. Uh, that inheritance is wealth that's been passed down to a family member or, or a legacy that one would receive because he's part of, of the family. And we understand what, what that inheritance would entail. Like if someone in the family who may be well-to-do and they, they pass uh, and they, they pass on, but they leave some of that inheritance, some of that wealth to their kin or next of kin or someone who's written in the wheel, well, that individual would inherit or gain or get those earthly possessions, right? Those, those inherit those earthly blessings. So we understand what inheritance is or inheriting is from our human standpoint, but understand something. Peter ain't talking about an earthly standpoint when it comes to inheritance because their human standpoint of inheritance, well, it's gone. All right. Remember, it's a bad day. Lost it all. 
But rather, he is pointing them to a certain future, not an earthly inheritance, but rather he is pointing their attention to an eternal inheritance, to a future gain that will never be lost. But what is our eternal inheritance? Well, in a nutshell, I want to tell you what it is. Our eternal inheritance is the many spiritual riches that we have in Christ and because of Christ through the salvation that He has alone provided. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So an overall general definition of our inheritance are those rich spiritual blessings that we have in Christ and because of Christ. And we can look in detail at some of those spiritual blessings. We can think of our eternal home. We can think of a heaven one day when we get there as the Bible describes it in Revelation chapter 21 with the streets of gold and the walls of jasper and the gate of pearl, one pearl. Pretty amazing to think about. And as a child of God, we will be there one day. But rather, that's not the emphasis that Peter is pointing to. The emphasis that he is pointing to here is a matter of eternal life. Because you wouldn't have those eternal inheritances without eternal life. Again, because of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, he's talking about it in verse number 3 as well. So he's talking about our eternal life. What an inheritance we have because, because of that. Folks, there shouldn't be a day go by that as believers we shouldn't thank God for our salvation. We, shouldn't thank, we, shouldn't, we should always thank God for the day that He saved us and gave us life eternal. Because understand, someday you're going to experience and finally inherit, if I can say it that way, those eternal blessings. It's going to be amazing. So our inheritance is the spiritual blessings the Lord has given. But Peter goes on and describes the eternal state of, those, of that inheritance that one day we will, we will see. And he uses these words. Look at the next one. Incorruptible. What does this mean about our eternal inheritance? Well, it means this, that our eternal inheritance will not succumb to corruption. They will not decay. And we understand there are many things on earth that are corrupt, right? You say, yeah, politics, politicians, they're corrupt. And I say, you're probably right. Yes, yes, absolutely. But that's not the corruption we're talking about, right? Rather, the corruption that he's pointing to or talking more about is, is this, things that begin to rust, things that begin to break down and decay. And listen, our earthly possessions do that. No matter how for tough they are built, they will decay, all right? It will rust. It will break down. But there's something that never will. Our eternal inheritance never, never decay, never break down Never lose value. And then he goes on to say it's undefiled. Now, this means it cannot be deformed. Or I can say it in my hillbilly interpretation. You can't even put a dent in that thing. All right? It is, it is undefiled. Now, I asked this on Wednesday, but I'll ask it again this morning. Anyone here, you're like me, and uh, you just hate it. Be honest now. We're in church. But you hate it when your car door gets dinged. Anybody? Yeah, I don't love it either. <laughs> it's not something that just uh, 
gets me excited, all right? Or maybe excited in a different way, you know, but not happy. Uh, nobody likes that. I remember when we first got our car and our Corolla bought in uh, 2010, and after about a month of owning it, came out and I noticed there was a big dent, not just a little tiny ding, just a little bit of paint on it. No, no, it was a big dent, about that long, about that wide, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it was big, all right? And uh, the paint of the, the door that dinged it was there, and it was not our paint, and oh, man, it was, it was, it was, just, it was terrible. And uh, I was not in the spirit in that moment when I saw that, right? But I hated it. I hate when that happens. It was a brand new car, now a new ding in it, and don't look so nice and new anymore. And of course, now after 13 years, it's got more door dings in it, half the bumper's gone, broken tail light, and the West Virginia state color of rust is beginning to show, right? But anyway, but it still runs, I'll take it, amen. But we hate when that happens, when things that we, we, we like or we think's nice gets dinged or, or dented or, or whatever. But there's one thing, listen, that will never be defiled, Never be dinged, never be dented, deformed whatsoever. It's our eternal inheritance. And then it says this, it fadeth not away. This simply means something that does not fade, something that does not lose its color, something that will not wilt, nor will it die. Now let me ask you, some of you no doubt, you love the pretty colors of the flowers, right? Uh, my wife likes the wildflowers and the vibrant colors that come with them. And they are nice for a time, but they don't last. Why? Because they begin to fade, begin to wilt. What do you got to do with them? You got to throw them away. You got to chuck them. You got to get rid of them. Why? Well, they're wilted and, and dead. They're no longer pretty. But listen, there's something that will never fade, something that will never lose its color. It's our eternal inheritance. Peter's trying to point them to a certain future here because their present moment was horrible. He's letting them know there's coming a better day. That yes, through the trials of life, you may lose everything, but understand something you cannot lose, and that is your eternal inheritance. There is a certain future coming, and Peter's trying to point them to that very fact. Look at it again, verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. There's a better day coming for the child of God. And maybe you're going through something. Trials, difficulties, whatever it may be. I don't know necessarily exactly. Now some of you are facing them. But please know, for the child of God, there is a better future coming one day. And that is something to look to. And that is something that should give every one of us hope. What else did he point him to? That should give him hope in this moment. All right, look at verse number 5. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So number three, and lastly, see this. This should give them great hope here, as well as us. But he pointed them to this, a conservated force. What do you mean by that, preacher? You're really stretching it for this alliteration here. <laughs> okay. Here's what I mean. I mean, he points them to a power that's protecting them. He's pointing them to a complete strength that they have access to. Look at it again. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice, notice that phrase there. 
are kept. As Peter was writing this, uh, these believers at this moment, as they read that, no doubt should have generated great hope within their hearts and minds. Because this phrase here, are kept, it's a military phrase. It's a military phrase from the Greek word phreo. And this word means to guard. It means to protect by a military guard to prevent hostile invasion. And no doubt these believers at this moment, they for sure thought they were under attack. They for sure thought they were suffering and enduring some hostile invasion because really they were. They were under attack from left, right, everywhere around them was against them. But they didn't understand something even in the moment, in that midst of that time. They still had a force guarding them, protecting them, keeping them secure, whether they realized it or not. But what was it? What was that force protecting them? What were they guarded by, protected by? Again, look at verse number 5. Who are kept by the power of God. Understand something. Listen. If you're a struggling believer who don't know if they go another day facing great struggles. Dear believer who's needing hope today, please understand something. Though there are certain things that may come against us and certain troubles of life that come into our life and though the enemy may attack on every side and is very loud and brutal in those attacks, Understand through it all, the enemy is only allowed to go so far. The troubles that we face are only allowed to get so big because we're always under the mighty protection of our great God. And no one is more powerful than Him. 1 John 4, 4, You are of God, little children, have overcome them, because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Again, Revelation 1, 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, here it is, the Almighty. Understand something, we are kept, we are guarded, we are protected by the power of God, and His power is unmatched. No one's more powerful than our great God. It's okay to say amen right there. He is the Almighty. Now, again, if you're like me, as you think of this verse and compare it with all that's going on in the hearts and lives of these believers in the first century with the persecution, with the fiery trials of life, and so forth and so on, it can be a little bit hard to reconcile the trouble that they were facing with the protecting power of our almighty God. Because, I mean, after all, why doesn't the Lord, who is all-powerful, just stamp them out? Why don't He just put a stop to Nero? Why doesn't He just put a stop to all the hurt and allowing these things? He's all-powerful, right? He is all-powerful. But you understand something. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He knows better. He's the all-wise God. And to get a better understanding of that question of reconciling what we know to be true in the first century with these wonderful, powerful verses and knowing the great power of God, to get a better understanding of that, 
I think it was good to listen quickly to the testimony of the Apostle Paul as he talked about the matter of suffering that he faced, that he endured, not just once, twice, but daily that he faced. You see, he said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10, And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Uh, this is why Paul, this storm, was Paul was given. He, he says, listen, understand God is allowing this in my life for a greater purpose. He said to keep me humble, lest I should be exalted above measure. God did not want Paul to get the, as we would say, the big head, right? God wanted him to be humble. And being humble is a good thing, yes? Okay, all seven of us are on the same page. Good, all right. Humility is good. God honors that. The Bible says in James 4, 6, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So God needed Paul, the mighty apostle that we know and love, to be a humble individual. But why would he do that? Why would he humble him in this moment? Because understand, God had so much more planned for Paul's life. Yes, he had more missions trips for him to go on. Yes, he had more churches for him to establish and plant. But he had, he had more Bible for the Apostle Paul to pen and to write. Because understand, up to this point in 2 Corinthians, Paul had not written Romans yet. Anybody get any encouragement out of Romans ever? Yeah, amen. Romans 10, 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. That's great. Haven't been written yet. He hadn't written Philippians or Ephesians or Colossians or Philemon yet. He hadn't written 1st or 2nd Timothy yet. He hadn't penned Titus yet. Listen, God had so much more for Paul to do. But with the abundance of the revelations that were given to him, he could have been tempted to be prideful. But he needed to be humble. And so Paul, understanding this, puts all the suffering in perspective and says this in verse 7, There was given me. He considered this thorn in the flesh, the suffering he endured daily, as a gift. <laughs> That's amazing to me. Because uh, that word given, again, it means as if someone is bestowing to you a gift. Paul considered the weakness in his life, not a disadvantage or a handicap, but rather a helpline. Considered it a gift. Did it feel good? No, 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 no. This buffeting, this, this striking with the fist, that's what buffeting means, from the messenger of Satan, some, some uh, uh, demonic force or some demon uh, inflicting some kind of oppressive pain toward him, did not, no doubt, and no doubt did not feel good, but it was for his good. He continues on in his testimony, he says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect, and weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, if I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. Listen, God allows us sometimes to experience these weaknesses and trials that in the midst of them, in the midst of the weakness, we will see and seek His strength. That's why I allowed it in Paul's life. 
Maybe that's why I allowed it even in these lives, these believers, in these moments, they would see and seek his strength because understand something, God never intended anyone, any believer to live outside of him, outside of his power or outside of his strength. We all need Jesus, not just for salvation, but for everyday living. We need the Lord. Jesus made that very plain in John chapter 15, verse 4 through 5, when he spoke to his disciples and said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. And no more can ye, except you abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Here it is, listen. Made it plain. He said, For without me ye can do nothing. Plain speech is easily understood, is it not? You know what that means? You can't do nothing without Him. <laughs> can't. We need the Lord. We need Him. We need His strength in the midst of our weaknesses. And we find that strength and that grace is sufficient, is enough. During those times, we find a power that will protect us. A power in our weaknesses, a strength in our weaknesses. Listen, we will never find ourselves in a situation that exceeds the amount of grace or strength that we need to endure that weakness or trial or difficulty or trouble. Listen, God's grace and strength is never depleted, and it's always enough. Always. Always. So no wonder Paul, when he finished up that testimony there, in 2 Corinthians, he said, Most gladly, therefore, meaning it's with great pleasure. He must have worked at Chick-fil-A on the side, anyway. It's with great pleasure. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Here it is. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then... Am I strong? So that's his perspective on it. That's his understanding of it on the matter of weakness, on the matter of infirmities, on the sicknesses, disease, feebleness, any physical, physical ailments, even the oppression he was facing from the messenger of Satan himself. He said, here's my perspective on it. You ready? Praise God. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Mm. That was his perspective. He was saying, I take those physical weaknesses because that means that the power of Christ will be with me and rest upon me. That word rest upon means take habitation of, possess. Rest upon me. I have the strength I need as I face these things. That was his testimony. But it's not found in us. It's not found in our, in our wisdom on our stuff, the power we need that is sufficient for our weakness is found in God Almighty. And that strength and power is never diminished, never depleted. It's more than enough. So in this moment, as Peter is writing to these dear people, these precious believers, though they were suffering, though they were hurting, he wanted them to know, look, look, you are still kept by the power of God. Look at it, verse number 5. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
He wanted them to know it's horrible, it's awful, but don't you dare miss out on this. You are kept by the power of God. So dear Christian, this morning, you may be here, you're hurting, you're struggling, and maybe in your mind and heart you are, in com- you are a complete mess. <laughs> you're just a hot mess, all right? That's okay. <laughs> you're in complete distress. That's, that's okay. Because through it all, I want you to know something. You are still kept by the power of God. And in these moments of life, He wants you to see that His power, His grace is more than enough. Just come to Him. Come to Him. Believe on Him. Trust Him. Through it all, we are kept by the power of God. In the end... In the end, we'll know and understand more fully. We'll get to heaven and see Him face to face about God's protecting power and even in those struggles of life. Again, look at verse number 5. Who are kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We'll know better by and by. All these things we've endured and gone through, and even these believers in the first century, how they suffered so. They would see and understand better the power of God when they see God face to face. Same with us. And we will look back, and we will understand fully, yes, that was God's protection. That was God's grace. Didn't understand it in the moment. It was the Lord. But dear friend today, I want you to know you can trust Him through your trials. You can trust Him through your heartache, and there is great hope in the Lord. As you redirect your focus upon Him, see that certain future that awaits us, and that there's no one more powerful than Him. He keeps you by His power. Let that bring great